Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. podcast about the sharing, gig, and circular loop economy that is expected to grow to $335 billion by 2025. This is the podcast where founders, CEOs, market makers, and market leaders come to discuss the future of the sharing economy. Guys, this is episode 23, a gigging news episode, and I'm extremely excited to announce a co-host for these episodes, Eleanor Tucker. Yes, yes, Eleanor Tucker. You heard from her earlier in the podcast when we interviewed her and discussed her legacy as it related to peer-to-peer platforms. She's now a co-host of Gigging News, and I think you're going to love every minute of it. We're going to cover the top six stories that impacted the sharing economy for that month. So here's our first episode with Eleanor Tucker and Gigging News. Welcome to Gigging, Everything in the Sharing Economy, the podcast about the sharing gig and circular loop economy that is expected to grow to $335 billion by 2025. This is the podcast where founders, CEOs, market makers, market leaders come to discuss the future of the sharing gig and circular loop economies. Guys, we have a fascinating show today. Why is it fascinating? Because it is a gigging news show, but it's even more special because we have a co-host. Yay! (laughs) We have a co-host who is, you've heard from her before because she's been on this program, Eleanor Tucker. But let me refresh and tell you a little bit about her so you can be as excited as I am to have her be a co-host on our gigging news segments. She's a former journalist, advertising and creative and media expert turned peer-to-peer marketplace obsessive. And when I say obsessive, she is obsessed with peer-to-peer platforms. And no one knows more than she does about this stuff. She's a freelance features writer for many of the world-renowned media groups, such as Guardian and the BBC. She co-founded Rude. Yeah, Rude, the first communications agency to focus on the sharing economy and she is director and gang leader. That means don't mess with her. She's the gang leader at Gang Hut Media, the only marketing agency specializing in peer-to-peer 
marketplace platforms. Eleanor Tucker, say hello to your <laughs> audience because they're tuning in to hear you. Well, that was uh, that was some intro, Mark. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I am obsessed with this world. So the chance to discuss news articles about marketplaces, peer-to-peer, gig economy, sharing economy, all things like this uh, is perfect because obviously I read articles about this every day. So um, I don't often get to, to talk about them and to talk about them someone with someone who's equally obsessed like you. So this is an absolute pleasure. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. And for the audience, what we're going to do is spend time talking about the big six. So Eleanor, or Elle as she likes to be called, has picked out three of the most important stories in the last month, and I've done the same. We're going to alternate going back and forth, talking about the articles, sharing our perspective, and the outlook of what we think the articles imply. We hope that some of what we say makes sense because we're so obsessed with this stuff that it may get a little nerdy, but we'll try to enlighten, have a little fun, and give a little perspective on everything that we talk about today. Does that sound fair? I think it does. So, Elle, let's turn to the first article. You brought us one today that I think is pretty exciting. I did. And I, uh, I actually found a story about this company in a few publications, but the one I picked up particularly and read was actually in the San Francisco Chronicle, because this is where the startup in question has kicked off. And um, I actually hadn't heard of the mark. I don't know if you had. They are called Globe. I think that they're, they're I, from what I've read, they're a reincarnation of another company. Um, It sounds like they've had some investment, about a million dollars investment, and apparently they've got 10,000 listings over the world. And the the format is, it's a platform where you can list your home, but not for an Airbnb style stay, for a stay for somebody who maybe wants some space to work, some time out from their family, you know, they want to have a meeting, they want peace and quiet. So it's about using a room in someone else's house for, um, you know, for reasons where maybe you have uh, a too crowded or noisy home, you know, things like that. So a temporary kind of office workspace in someone else's home. Now, I have read that they uh, had a previous version which was more to do with people using hotel rooms for a similar purpose so so renting hotel rooms by the hour and I don't know if you'd heard of that Mark but apparently it didn't really survive because the hotels had to invest quite a lot of time in cleaning those rooms you know for quite a short uh, spell of actually having someone in there that was called recharge and, and so Globe has evolved out of that. Had, had you heard of the Mark before this story? Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of them. And I've uh, followed several other models that are in the same space. You have some, some bigger companies that have played in this space when it came to corporate sharing of, of space like Regis and you know their concept of quote unquote, hoteling, where they will rent an office by the hour, by the day, by the week. You know, you pick the, the, the term and they will give you space to, to work out of. Where these guys differ, like you say, from uh, a Regis is that they're letting people set these home offices up in an actual residence, a home 
which kind of begs the question of why they named themselves Globe instead of uh, Homework uh, to counter off of the, the WeWork, which is giving you that same sort of workspace. But yeah, these guys have an interesting model in providing private home rental, office rentals for people who, because of the, the pandemic, no longer have access to public space at places like Starbucks or, or even places like Regis that have uh, limited access because of the possibility of in- infections. It's interesting, though, because they've been going since before the pandemic, and I think that they saw the pandemic as as an opportunity for growth because of exactly the reasons you've just talked about. But the the article in question was actually because the the San Francisco authorities are saying that this this is a breach of their um, lockdown conditions for people to be going into other people's houses, um, which you can understand. And I don't think you would be able to get away with that in in the UK, uh, probably you know, a few weeks ago, up until a few weeks ago, that wouldn't have been allowed. But what I think is quite interesting about this model, that I am interested to see that it seems to be to be working, that to me, there's a few, a few issues, I would say that if you did want to use an office space, you would probably be more likely to want to use that for a, a decent amount of time, I can understand maybe for a call or something, you know, where you really wanted privacy you maybe wanted to record something like we are now that you might want to to actually book in but to me um, an office space is something that you maybe want to use for longer periods of time so I don't know with the with the providers actually listing would they be prepared for somebody to want to book that space for for a whole day or a week or something I, d- I don't really know how that works so I suppose it'd be matching that supply and demand and making sure that that both sides were getting out of it what they wanted um, and like you say, the, the name uh, is slightly confusing because it doesn't really bring to mind what it what it does. But uh, that said, they they do seem to be uh, attracting attention, and I, I've I've seen them mentioned, um, you know, qu- quite a lot. But but the, the article talks in terms of using a place for sort of thirty minutes or so. But you would probably need to use it for longer. You would probably also then need to use other facilities in that home you know such as the the bathroom or or maybe a kitchen area so you know I can't see how it would work during the lockdown and also as as a provider would that be something that you would want because also one of the benefits of putting your house on maybe an Airbnb style platform is that you have people staying the night but not around during the day like a you know like another resident so this is kind of the opposite of that because I've stayed in in Airbnbs in people's private homes and arrived there sort of you know in the evening after a work event or something slept the night left first thing in the morning to catch a train or you know so it's very unintrusive other than the fact that you are there, there overnight you're not actually you know part of the 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 daily life of the person so I'm not sure. Um, let's see how that pans out for them. Yeah, one of, yeah. just to drill down on the, um, the problem they're running into, particularly in San Francisco, I think the article mentioned that the San Francisco attorney, Dennis Herrero, has basically thrown down the gauntlet and said these guys are going to be subject to fines and even imprisonment for violating the COVID-19 ordinances that they've laid out uh, in the city, which I thought was surprising because there's no mention of Airbnb being in violation of these same sorts of of, uh, of regulations in the city. So they haven't 
told them they need to shut down the Airbnbs, which, like you say, would tend to uh, be an even greater breach of, uh, of the model that San Francisco has laid out. So I'm, I'm wondering how these guys are going to walk that tightrope. I have some thoughts on how they can, can, can do that. Uh, I like their model because uh, they have the opportunity to give you a couple of things that I think travelers want. When I launched, uh, not my last startup, but the startup before that, uh, and these were in the late 90s, early 2000s, I booked my travel around Starbucks to find just internet access where I would even get a cup of coffee, sit in a, a table outside the Starbucks and ride their, their internet because they offered it up for free. Mm-hmm. And I think there are opportunities for some of these homeowners to basically share their bandwidth, even if they don't bring the person in their home, you know, sit on my deck, sit out uh, in this open area where I've made this, uh, this, this work space available and ride off my internet for a flat fee or for a hourly fee uh, to do so. Uh, so that's, you know, one option. They certainly could, um, uh, you know, go even deeper the way these guys are pitching it coming into the home for a mm-hmm. short period of time. And if they take a, 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 a page out of the Airbnb playbook and publish cleaning protocols, Airbnb is going really extensive manual on what you do prior, during, and after a stay to make sure that you have thoroughly cleaned and sanitized the entire workspace before the next person comes in. These guys could get on the right side of the regulations when it comes to San Francisco and make themselves welcomed in other communities. In a uh, interview that's going to air in a couple of weeks, I spoke with the founders of Rideshare Mechanic. They do virtual inspections of Uber and Lyft cars. And I asked them the question, why aren't you doing virtual inspections of homes for people like Airbnb? Because that's going to be the new requirement. Is your home ready to hold someone? Uh, and have you done all the necessary things to make sure it's sanitized? You can't send a person to every house to inspect, but you can do a virtual inspection and do a checklist and at least mitigate a lot of the the issues that you're trying to solve for. So I think these guys have a fighting chance, but more importantly, I think they may end up being an Airbnb acquisition. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And I think that that there'll be more and more of a need for this type of platform in this new normal that everyone is talking about, because I think the, the boundaries and the guardrails of the way that we work and travel and, commute and all these things are going to shift so dramatically that you know who's to say that as you as you say using someone's uh, wi-fi for a, a, an amount of time or needing to use their facilities for a short amount of time won't become more of a, a part of of the way that we work in in another city or even in the same city that that we live in maybe that that is going to be part of it now that people are going to be working at home more maybe commuting less, traveling less, you know, there, there's going to be a, a whole shift there and, and, and potentially this sort of platform uh, can, can seize part of the, the market there. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. When you think about the new demands for bandwidth when it comes to education with virtual learning, you could see there being scenarios where neighbors will book an office at a neighbor home, at a neighbor's home in order to get 
uh, temporary access to the resources that they need for a meeting, for a project, or for even a school assignment. So there will be a, uh, a shift if these pandemics continue in the future and to be hardened into the way we live going forward. These guys might be positioned in a good spot to help make that transition happen. I mean, certainly here in, in my house over the lockdown, there's been two adults working, um, you know, doing Zoom calls, things like that, and two children, you know, wanting to online game, FaceTime their friends, that type of thing. And there have been times when, you know, it's been a kind of like, okay, we're almost tossing a coin for who's going to be closest to the hub and get the most of the, the bandwidth, um, which is, you know, which is tough and certainly not anything we would have come across before because, you know, we wouldn't have all been here at the same time. So this this might just allow people to sort of dilute the amount of people using the um, the house and trying to work, trying to concentrate, trying to use all the broadband at the same time and be a, a, a great solution. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't count the number of uh, times where that's happened to me as well in my home during this time period. But when I go into my settings, I see all of my neighbors' Wi-Fi uh, accounts that are obviously password protected. But if this model were to play out, they would make their capacity, their bandwidth, if there's not, they're not using it available to me and me to them. And it solves more of the problems that we just talked about. So, you know, it's like taking uh, James and Barty's rent items and turning it into a virtual rent Internet that uh, solves a lot of the community problems mm-hmm. when it comes to sharing this bandwidth. This could be fascinating. Hopefully these guys hear what we're talking about and uh, pick up on some of this and stay alive because yeah. uh, there's some obviously something something to what they're doing and it's all about underutilized assets isn't it and, right uh, and, right uh, you know, whatever they those assets are right right and getting them at a fair market price because additional hardware means more cost more strain on the system but if we can utilize the total capacity that's already available in the system uh we can uh uh it'll be better for everyone involved and there's not a model yet to do that. These guys may be the first ones to, to tap into this in the way that, that we're talking about. And the pandemic could be the catalyst behind that movement. Totally. And that leads nicely into your, um, your Airbnb story actually, doesn't it? Cause we've just been talking about Airbnb a little bit there. Yeah. So, so let's switch over to story number two. Airbnb has found themselves in a little bit of hot water because of the pandemic and how they handle it. So in an article from PR Newswire, um, June 11th, uh, 2020, Airbnb converted $2 billion in host payouts for its own purposes. And the hosts are fighting back by suing Airbnb. And the way the um, this kind of plays out is Airbnb changed the service terms that they have with their hosts unilaterally during the pandemic and issued guests that booked a host resident a 100% refund. So if I were booking uh, to stay there in the UK and the pandemic limited my ability to travel, there were terms that were initially set up by each host with Airbnb and the guests that booked that may have required you to forfeit the security deposit or the cleaning fee or whatever fees you lay out in your term, your individual terms, if you had to cancel within a certain time frame. Airbnb went in and unilaterally changed all of those without consulting the host and gave all the guests a 100% refund. And so 
the hosts now are saying hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary BTW, void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That's a violation. We want relief from that. And they are forcing Airbnb to come to the table. Now, here's the unique part of it. If you sign up to be a host with Airbnb, you agree not to sue them and you have to uh, arbitrate with them through a mediator to get relief from any problem you have with Airbnb. So to solve that problem and to put more pressure, 10,000host.com has created a platform that essentially uses the internet to group source plaintiffs to bring a massive amount of these requests for mediation with Airbnb, all of which cost Airbnb almost the amount of money of, 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 of taking on a class action suit. So Airbnb hosts pay a $200 filing fee with 10,000host.com to start the arbitration. And Airbnb has to pay all the remaining arbitration costs and expenses, which could exceed almost $10,000 per arbitration. And the goal of 10,000host.com, obviously, is to get 10,000 hosts to file an arbitration and you multiply 10,000 times the fees that Airbnb has to pay. And suddenly you're talking about some real money and that brings them to the table. So what I find fascinating about this one, Airbnb unilaterally changing their terms, but two, how the, how this platform has found a way to bring tech giants to the table using their own terms against them. I think it really puts into sharp focus the, the, the whole debate around a platform versus a, a traditional company and, you know, a, a, where the accountability is here. Because, you know, these are, these are trips that have not taken place. And um, for other travel companies, refunds have been given. Um, to people who have not been able to take their trip because of the pandemic. And I get that Airbnb have, you know, by changing, um, you know, what, what they'd originally set up, you know, that's all very questionable. But do you not think that the hosts were entering into this at their own risk to, their own, their, to a degree? And that when something like this happens, the, you know, the, the travel hasn't taken place and the guest hasn't been able to actually do what they plan to do. And they're getting a refund, just like people who've booked holidays elsewhere. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it seems, um, it seems a, a strange one really that the, the, the hosts feel that 
you know, they should be completely protected from from that happening when, you know, travel companies aren't. Yeah, well, I think the um, it's, it's an interesting perspective. The, the Typically, some of the terms from the host side are fairly liberal. So if you were booking a stay and you canceled within two to three days of arrival, that's when many of the penalties will kick in because the host at that point may have already spent money to have the property cleaned, prepared, and staged for the incoming guest. So that's an out-of-pocket expense that they only recover after the guest has actually stayed and completed the the, the, the stay with that uh, with that particular property. So the uh, amount to be refunded typically in those scenarios, if they canceled, would be the room amount, but the other fees then would be collected by the host to make them whole. So if they pay $100 to a cleaning service to make sure the home is ready for that guest, they would recover that they would also recover the Airbnb fee that's charged, and that makes them whole. Uh, the room stay would go back to the traveler, and everyone in that scenario is kind of at least compensated and refunded for the skin they put into the game. Airbnb came in and reshuffled the deck and gave all the money back even though host had invested to make sure that the guests were capable of staying, even though they didn't complete the transaction. And that's regardless of how far in advance the trip was canceled. mm -hmm. Right, right. And so I think, you know, first of all, I was kind of shocked that Airbnb didn't have an act of God clause in their, their terms of service. I know with all of the startups I've launched, Whenever I had a customer sign a contract, there was always that act of God clause that said, hey, if a meteorite hits the planet, I am probably not going to provide this service. So I would have thought that they would have had that as a as a a term within the host agreement that gave them the, the latitude to act outside of the standing terms and conditions. I just uh, it just it kind of kind of baffled me that they did not did not have that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen, um, I was reading a couple of years ago about how some big companies have actually worked a, a zombie apocalypse clause into their um, terms and conditions because, you know, they, they just want to be covered for, for any eventuality. It's, and, you know, so, you know, as you say, an act of God clause seems like it would have been a good idea, but it, I can't help but think that if these trips were cancelled way in advance, then, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily a, an outlay on the host mm-hmm. part in terms of preparation for for the stay. But yeah, uh, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one because you do wonder, uh, you know, uh, the, the host guest thing on Airbnb and an Airbnb being the platform and the connector of the two. And obviously there, there's got to be a, a degree of accountability there. Um, but uh, yeah, I wonder I wonder what the outcome of the, uh, of the 10,000 hosts um, site will be and how that will play out it's going to be an interesting one to watch well to me this what what kind of scared me about this is i think these guys are opening the new door for law firms the 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 new tactic for law firms in this digital age in the uh, in the sharing and gig economy age is going to be aggregating users and utilizing 
this sort of poison peel approach to force these companies to settle uh, mm-hmm. for a, a, a certain amount for the users who sign up for the program. And of course, the firms will collect their cut of that settlement. This could be a great threat to many of the large tech companies that are providing their platforms. If you have equally large legal uh, and uh, law firms operating platforms to aggregate users and using their arbitration clauses as a way to choke the system in of sorts and force settlements, even in circumstances where it may not even be you know, legitimate. As you say, there, there are logical times when you should refund the money, and then there are times when there should be at least mm-hmm. uh, a, a sunk cost that's provided to the host. If this works for these particular users, who's to say that 10,000host.com can't turn around and pick another topic get 10,000 people to, to sign up for arbitration and Airbnb, Uber, Lyft uh, are facing a, an equal bill of a million, 10 million, you know, you, you name it uh, for, for stuff that they, you know, obviously, you know, can't arbitrate and continue to op- operate a company. Yeah. And I think one thing we can, you know, certainly agree on with this story is that it's an example of how unprepared everyone has been for what has happened in 2020. Um, You know, it really does uh, make you realize that, you know, whatever happens, we're going to look back on this year and think, gosh, nobody saw that coming. Um, Right. Right. Yeah. We have to go Um, back and do a postmortem on this and have people uh, both online and offline, because there were some great, businesses that won't make it through this because they could not, you know, flip the switch and move from just in restaurant dining to delivery. You know, there's so many scenarios. I mean, Airbnb, uh, they've had a tremendous drop off in their in their business because of the pandemic, uh, but they still have opportunities. That's why I, in the, I said I thought the previous globe looked like an acquisition target because if you want to get access to Internet, who has more data on homes that have internet besides Google? Uh, it would probably be Airbnb. Oh, they yeah. got a uh, yeah, catalog be- of all the services that you can provide in your home that may not necessarily relate to an overnight stay, but things that business travelers still may want. So it would be good to be a fly on the wall in some of the meetings, the frantic meetings that are taking place in some of these big tech companies um, at yeah. the moment. Well, it? hopefully <laughs> they will uh, they will let us come in and and and, and be those flies one day. Well, exactly. Um, then that fits in nicely with the article that I found in Ad Week, which really, I suppose, was of interest and something I wanted to talk to you about, mainly because I think the technology is fascinating here. Um, this is an article about Clocked In, which it says in the article that it wants to be a LinkedIn for wage workers. But I, I wasn't, I didn't think that was a, a great analogy, really, because... Um, it's a bit, bit more than that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, really. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess they say they uh, they want to be Uber meets LinkedIn, kind of. Yeah. Um, so this is interesting. Um, new app wants to connect food service workers with available gigs. Um, and this is all about adapting to the crisis as well. Obviously, that's going to be a big focus of our discussion today. But Clocked In, which I think launched, launched in April, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, launched in April. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
And um, it's really quite clever. So job seekers, and this is people who work shift work in places such as coffee shops, grocery stores, fast food restaurants. Now they can view a map that updates in real time. Now I find that amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. They pick a specialization such as dishwashing, customer service, and they can view available work shifts across different employers in that chosen position and also get paid through the app. So yeah, I don't think LinkedIn is a great um, comparison. It is a bit more like Uber, isn't it? Yeah, um, a bit uh, more like Uber. It probably, probably should be Uber meets Netflix, kind of like what Tobias Perserud at App Jobs is, uh, is quoted as saying that the future is going to be workers streaming, having their work stream in front of them real time. And they're going to be able to plug and play an eight hour day across multiple employers. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and the technology that can actually allow that to happen is incredible because, you know, tracking a, a, a taxi and you know, that, that I, I mean, I'm, I'm not techie, but <laughs> I can certainly imagine that that's a much more simple um, type of technology then involves in multiple different work types, multiple timings, you know, constant updating by the, the companies that are uh, uploading their available shifts on that. So this was the article that sort of announced the, the, the arrival. I thought it was a very interesting model. And I think it does open up a bit more for us, I think, the conversation around the gig economy and the, the crisis and how gig work is really something that more people are going to be turning to in this post-pandemic recession, or if we can talk in terms of a post-pandemic at any point soon, that would be great. But the recession obviously is going to hit. Some people have been furloughed. They may be looking for additional income. And any app or platform that allows access to gig work and allows it to be as flexible as this as easy to access as as this is surely something that has really come at the right time have you seen anything like this appear in in the u.s oh yes yes Uh, last year i was part of a startup called proven and i uh, helped with the strategy Uh, i kind of anticipated this sort of world emerging probably three or four years ago when i was doing some strategy work even for a background check company before I, I joined on with the uh, startup proven. You, you, we're seeing this emerge. Uh, Uber itself has launched a business just like this, where they are trying to essentially act as a staffing agency for real time work for people who want different types of gig assignments. And so, as you said, uh, the, the, the pandemic has kind of pushed this to the forefront with more people finding themselves furloughed uh, and looking for opportunities. But this model is fascinating because like the Uber model, like the one we were building at Proven, you select a job type, your dishwasher. You select that and then suddenly all the dishwashing opportunities with multiple employers are plugged into the system. Those employers then go in and put the hours that they need a dishwasher. They may not need one all day. They may need one at 2, 4, 6, or 8 p.m. And based on your schedule and your availability that you put into the system, the algorithm automatically gives you the option to fill those available hours with the opportunities that the employers have also put in the system. So it's it's also... 
I don't want to call it a dating app, but it's a matchmaking app that pits your availability against their their work demands and gives you a schedule that you control. And that's something we saw coming in this market as many of the newly graduated high school seniors are opting not to want to work a full eight-hour job. They want to be able to select a place, a city, a location, a destination, uh, let people know they're available to work for three to four hours in order to earn money to do the things they want to do that evening. And then they turn the clock off and enjoy themselves, turn it back on the next day. And if everybody works that way, the problem is employers do need eight hours uh, to fill these jobs. And they now have to shift the way they staff, the way they recruit and the way they retain these workers. It's hard for any individual restaurant to do it. But a company like this or like Uber that's maintaining the records as well as the ratings. And that's the thing that I got really excited about when I was at Proven was that if I start out as a dishwasher, having someone retain my work history and the ratings that I get for performing those jobs means that over time, I'm going to get more work and more money as my ratings go up. And we mm-hmm. see that with the Uber model. That's why they got into this is that every time an Uber driver makes a drop off, we get to rate that person across multiple dimensions. And the higher their ratings, the more work they get as an Uber driver. So, yeah, it's there's about a half a dozen or so players uh, that have gotten real money. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal put uh, money into uh, another Atlanta based startup that uh, matches workers with jobs. They don't do it in real time, but they were pushing to to go down to that model, much like Proven was trying to do. Uh, And then you have a host of other startups uh, that are just dedicated to the restaurant space and to the grocery space that are that are doing this here in the U.S. as well. And I think what's really interesting here is the way that you know you and I talk a lot about technology empowering and democratizing and I think here is a really good example of so say pre-digital revolution when you know when I was a, a student maybe and doing sort of restaurant waitressing jobs you had to be in it or not in it and if you worked as a waitress somewhere um you you got your shifts for that week and you know that was it um and these were long shifts whereas you know somebody who's maybe wanting to dip in and out of that and have a bit more flexibility around a, a college course or or something you know they're, they're put back in control of that type of work um and it's easier for them to do because you know waitressing or dishwashing these are you know these are hard jobs and obviously maybe as you say for the restaurant it's tricky because they do need people for long shifts but it's not that everyone is going to want to do that and maybe splitting that job over two or three people throughout the the shift um, means that you've got some you know people coming in and they're a bit fresher and you know they're not tired out by the end of it so and and people might just want a, a shorter shift there and so it, it opens it all up which and I really like the idea of that yeah the one one question I have that I ponder if the pandemic has made companies more receptive and some of my early research suggested that they would be is white collar jobs so jobs that you would not suspect that would be open to this sort of shift work 
brand management, for example, or legal work or accounting work, you know, are we at the point where platforms like this will offer up opportunities to individuals that are in specialized uh, work areas to sell their services across multiple employers? And there are strong indications that that just might happen. It's, I think, Legal work we've seen with some of the the early upstarts like Legal Zoom that lawyers could be on a platform and offer up support for projects that are put into a queue, but this uh, approach lets them market themselves individually to uh, employers who need whatever they're. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no specialized capability is if it's tax law corporate, whatever, and not be tied down to an individual employer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that world's coming faster than, 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 yeah. than anticipated because of yeah. the pandemic. I think you're right. The only challenge with that, though, is that the, project, the projects tend to be more sort of immersive and, you know, kind of meatier in the sense that people need to get to know maybe the background of a, a project or a brand or, you know, the, the legal context of something. And this does open up these platforms with the kind of higher value, larger scale job work, contract work to um, this sort of disintermediation, this platform leakage, so that the the connection is formed on the platform, but then there's not really much incentive for the person to to deal necessarily with the platform that often and, and might form the connection with the company they're working for on the platform, but then from that point on transact with them off the platform. And then it's tough because, you know, the platform obviously isn't generating any revenue from the transaction from that point onwards. Whereas for something like this, there's a huge volume of jobs happening all the time. And I think the model is that with this, it's a hundred dollars a month subscription fee for the actual participating businesses on clocked in. So they've got that, that revenue constantly, haven't they? Whereas um, Mm -hmm. for larger scale jobs, you know, you do wonder if people would want to, to pay that. I mean, it's certainly an interesting trend to see these white collar jobs. Um, And actually we've got one we're going to talk about um, in a minute. um, Mm -hmm. yeah, with, we've got um, a market. Tra- travel agents, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's why I, I think this is coming faster than than we can expect because you do see, particularly like in the tech world, with you know Upwork and uh, uh, other platforms like that. Top Coder, uh, which we've talked to uh, the CEO of Top uh, Coder, Mike Morris, on this podcast, we see white collar work in in the tech space 
being kind of the, the leading horse in this movement, but it's it's coming faster than we think. When we see travel agents wanting to be part of platforms like that, you're absolutely right. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah, I think it is really interesting that the, the specialist gig economy platforms rather than the all types of work. So, but yeah, let, let's come back to that in a minute. Yeah, now one closing remark on this is that I do think as this movement continues, the platforms themselves are going to have to agree to be the centralized repository of my work history. And I think that's what will bring the white collar worker back to the platform is that when I complete an assignment, someone has to be the third party arbiter on what happened, what my rating is, what my qualifications are, so that when the next person wants to hire me, we have an apples to apples comparison of one lawyer versus another. And Mm -hmm. so these platforms are going to become de facto recruiting, uh, staffing, you know, agencies of sort, because they'll have the transaction history between the parties retained on the platform. And that'll be another revenue stream for them for maintaining that history for uh, their, for their platform users. And it will make them, you know, sticky, as they say, it's um, it will stop people um, transacting off the platform because they they get all this added value as well. Exactly. Exactly. So since we're talking about the uh, added value of these platforms, there's uh, an emerging threat to at least the big tech companies in the form of cooperatives. That's a, an article that caught my attention that was uh, in the redpepper.org, a group out of the UK, where they posed the question of can cooperatives overthrow the gig economy? And at the central source of the, uh, the article points to the platform being a tool to exploit the worker. Uh, and that they are taking a disproportionate amount of the value from the people who are actually performing the work, and that to make it a equitable system, cooperatives need to take the place of the tech giants and provide the technology for matching workers with employers who need their services and letting those two transact at a fair price so that the workers can have a sustainable life. And you have a group, a, a federation called the Coop Cycle that's at the, the forefront of this movement to give technology to cooperatives that want to operate their own quote unquote platforms in competition with some of the tech giants. And it made me wonder if this is the type of thing that could be the traditional tech giant killer if it gains momentum. Well, I think it's interesting. And I think that articles like this, I mean, what they do really is kind of, you know, show up um, the the digital giants. Um, and, and you just wonder why, um, you know, when you need a, a socialist or cooperative alternative to this, it you know it really does um, show you that there's no there's no middle ground and that these giants have dominated and you know they have a really bad you know reputation don't they and it's um it's a shame really that there's no sort of sliding scale so that people have something to relate to that they consider to be you know fair or a, a company that uh, that operates in a um, you know without exploiting its workers etc. So the, you know the, this is a sort of counter movement. Isn't it? It's countering the 
the the model, the tech giant model, but just shows that there's, you know, maybe not anything recognizable in the middle ground. Yeah, to me, it uh, it's it's the the digital replacement or the gig replacement of what we've called unions in the old economy, that it is uh, attempting to shift the power to the worker and give to them the the secret sauce that enabled the tech giants to become the intermediaries between workers and and companies. And I guess that to me, it, it, when I took a step back and looked at our our economy and and how it evolves, there's always this disruptive technology that comes in, and 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 there are these early winners who benefit from that early technology. But once it's figured out uh, and becomes almost open source, then a new model emerges that has to re-disrupt the market and, and, and help to create a different type of value. I'm wondering if we're at that point. You know, mm-hmm. 15 years ago, there was nobody matching uh, that with employers on the other side. It was a daunting task. 10 years before that, just to have the memory to operate a system of that sort required an investment in a Sun Microsystem box that cost you $10 million for just one. And the memory that you got with that Sun box you can now buy at Best Buy for $36. So, mm-hmm. you know, as, as the, the technology has shifted and the cost has come down, I'm wondering if we're at that flex point where the guys who get paid a lot to aggregate and become market makers no longer have that ability to use that as the uh, means for creating value for themselves, that the workers now have an opportunity to demand more of that value because of these uh, these players that we see. And we've seen that. Uh, Microsoft had complete dominance of the operating system. Open source came in and, and disrupted that and and forced a new model uh, into the marketplace. I, we, we may see the same thing happening here with this cooperative. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's always there's always going to be the, the, as you say, the big players that they come in and they take, you know, things to the, the furthest possible point and then there is always that that backlash and I, I think that um you know there has to be a kind of counter counter attack doesn't there and and you know I think that this was with this was waiting to happen so it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to see if 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 the movements like this will now help us to achieve a sort of middle ground where you know where platforms you know can actually work um you know with their uh, employees and and not exploit them and and offer a, a good value for for everyone and, and not be seen as these these giants that just um you know trample trample people underfoot yeah and I, I i think having the threat of a cooperative as you say will, will force that type of innovation look at players like fiverr uh when they launched Everything on the platform was $5, no matter what you did. If you reviewed a press release, if you created a logo, uh, everything $5. Uh, The threat, uh, both legal action and from platforms like this, now has made them change their business model. You have the actual workers setting the price for their service. And they're negotiating that directly with the person requesting that service. It didn't force Fiverr out of business. It created more value for Fiverr 
when they open that marketplace up for the workers and the uh, requesters to negotiate directly. And so people now who were getting $5 to do a logo are getting as much as $200 when they show that their work is specialized and differentiated from uh, other people who do logo work. And now they're sustainable. So they'll, they're actually, as you said earlier, they're sticky now to the Fiverr platform because of that one flex point they made in their business model. Yeah, and we've got to remember that, that a lot of these models, a lot of these platforms and ideas are brand new and there's no playbook here. So, you know, people do get it wrong and evolve and change and pivot and make things fairer and better and listen to feedback and listen to you know so it, it you know this this type of evolution of a, a platform i'm not saying you know they they all listen or they all um behave in a, a you know an admirable fashion but i think there are some great examples where you know things haven't gone right and the platform puts it right and becomes a better model for that because there's there's no precedent to some of these ideas so you know in a sense we're all making it up as we go along and that's not a bad thing is it no it's not it's absolutely not it's as long as those founders are willing to stay current with the trends and are pivoting to reflect the real demand of what as required by the market and for what's required to deliver that service, uh, we have a fighting chance to make sure that this becomes not part of the economy, but become the new economy. And, you know, when I talk with Tobias, if you do it right, everyone's able to sustain a lifestyle that they want. You can work where you want, when you want, and get paid an amount that allows you to live a, a, a real life. And I think that's the ultimate outcome that people are pursuing with this. And as long as you have leaders at the top of these companies that can see that, uh, there'd be enough value to to share with everyone involved. Mm-hmm. I think that leads us nicely into the story that I found about the online travel agent um, and hotel booking platform because we were talking about stickiness and um, white collar gig economy platforms and I thought this was interesting especially in the light of the the sort of crisis in in travel because of the the pandemic so it's called travel and it's done the the classic name where they've dropped all the vowels from it so it's spelled trvl.com And I did read this article in travelweekly.co.uk, which is a big website for travel news, um, industry travel news in the UK. And it talks about this new online marketplaces, which is appealing for travel agents to to sign up and list their services. Um, And it it hopes to provide a lifeline to agents who are out of work because of the crisis or struggling to generate their their leads because of the travel ban in in many countries and giving them access to a global audience that they maybe haven't had before. So I think it's already got about 5,000 agents signed up. um, And I mean, which is, which is great. And um, it's allowing them to market themselves in very specialist areas, earn commission. And um, when the consumer's 
book their their recommended travel they they get commission on, on that so I, ju- I just thought it was a really interesting example of a, a more specialist gig economy platform because we've been talking about some of uh the, the gig economy platforms say you know for example you've been talking about tobias you know app jobs these types of where you you are you know getting a gig work um of of multiple kinds on one platform whereas this one is is really specific so i i think it does open the debate about specialism and and verticals and and, and niche or, or niche as i know you guys in the u.s like to say um, <laughs> i still can't get used to that one um, <laughs> and, um so yeah i mean what how how do you get people to stay on the platform i think you had a really good example there about building the platform to be more than just an, an exchange of services, more than just a sort of matchmaking and that's it. Adding value, rating systems, these types of things, maybe in terms of content, making it a, a site that they want to visit so that they can um, get and share ideas, tips, these types of things. Um, and, you know, there are lots of things that people can do to, to make a, a very specialist platform, something that people want to, to stay on to, to, to access their, their gig work. Um, have you come across anything like this in the travel space before? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, these, these guys are tapping into some interesting trends that were emerging prior to the pandemic. So a number of the younger travelers are looking at travel itself experiences as assets. So they're no longer collecting the traditional assets, at least that's what the data is suggesting, you know, homes, cars, physical assets. They're looking at travel experiences as assets and they want unique personalized experiences that they can book with themselves, their families and their friends. And that movement has even pushed players like Airbnb and others to add functionality to their platform for group booking. So if I, if 10 of us want to go to an Island, uh, I no longer have to carry the cost of that. I can just sign up with 10 people. We all split the cost. We all put our individual credit cards in. And once the 10th person has paid, we can book that Island. So that, 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 change or shift in how people look at travel experiences is what I think is driving these guys to provide this unique platform because they're pitching the agents as someone who uh, is a local asset that knows the region, knows the area, knows based on what you're looking for, the best place for you to get that experience. And they may also be the curator of more than just a, a stay. They may book your reservations at a park, uh, reservations at a restaurant. They may book a, a hayride, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever you want to get out of that local uh, adventure, they were curated because they're the, the local asset on the ground that knows the right people, uh, the right places to give you what you're looking for without running into you know, a hairy situation where you may not have enough money or know the uh, know the landscape, they're supposed to curate that. They get rewarded when these individuals book and take their suggestions. And so the better they are at knowing their local market enough to book from, you know, low end all the way up to high end type demands, the more uh, they get... Uh, the more traffic they get as these individual agents. And that's what they've been asking for is to mm-hmm. say, Hey, I am a 
I'm a person that knows Selma, Alabama, like the back of my hand. And if you, Mark Zuckerberg, come to Selma, which he did come to Selma uh, back uh, two years ago, if you want a, an experience that's reflective of a billionaire in Selma, Alabama, I'll curate that for you. Likewise, mm-hmm. if you are everyday common Joe, Mark Peterson, going to Selma, Alabama, you have a budget of $1,000, I will curate an experience for you based on your budget and the things that you care about. You may not care about the Civil War. You may only care about the Civil Rights Movement. I'm going to curate a unique stay restaurant and presentation project uh, at a museum just for you based on what you've laid out. And I love that about these guys. I love it. And you just, I mean, that really is um, just something that makes the difference when you're traveling to have that to have that local insider I mean don't have to be local but somebody just who knows the place and you know that insider knowledge and it can really make such a difference so we were in Copenhagen last summer and did such a sort of classic we just didn't know any better thing um which you know was just we knew that there was probably somewhere better down a, a back street but we did that thing where you sit in the main square um, and order like coffees um, for me and my husband, hot chocolates for the kids. And I swear we were about, um, you know, $60 down just for some hot beverages first thing in the morning. And um, <laughs> it was uh, just probably a much nicer cafe around the corner. And just little tips like that, little insider tips when you're traveling, just make all the difference and can turn, a, you know, a trip into a, a much more economical um, outing and B, just something much more enjoyable when you're really getting to know a place and getting to know all the, the um, little hidden gems in a city. So um, this place, uh, this platform is, is meant to launch on September the 1st. And in the article, it says, when it is hoped that travel bookings will start picking up again. So let's all hope that that is happening on September the 1st. And good luck to uh, travel.com. Yeah, I would love to have been in their boardroom when they were pulling together the strategy for this, because like you said, where the real value is going to come in that would separate them from players like Travel Advisor or Yelp or Google, which, you know, many travelers turn to when they're in local markets where they don't have experience or knowledge of the shops and services, you know, they'll just put in a zip code and say what, what comes up and look at that those ratings as a as a compass on where to find the, the the experiences that they're trying to curate for themselves. What would make it useful, like you said, is to have a agent in your pocket, a a a lifeline where you can get real time feedback from people who know the market and can tell you to turn left versus right when it comes to what you want to do for that day or that week. And the more they know about you, your family, your preferences, the better they can become at curating experiences for people who are like you. So they can become, uh, I hate to keep using the, the phrase, the Netflix of the travel space. If they are really, really, you know, focused on collecting the data and analyzing it uh, in a way that gives them a predictive way to, to help others curate similar or like experiences in those same markets. Certainly, in my mind, this becomes a high-end experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they are pitch, uh, pitching themselves as that for travelers who want that type of curated experience, 
they can make this work. Yeah, and take the pressure off these, you know, these tourist destinations where, you know, everyone is just going to the same place mm-hmm. um, and, you know, just doing the same sort of tourist circuit when, you know, that's not really how you can kind of get to know a country, is it? Because, you know, there's history and stories in many places, but, you know, there's a there's a set tourist circuit, isn't there? And and a lot of these places have become, you know, ruined by too many people going to them. Whereas, you know, the world is amazing and full of many things. It's like we shouldn't just be going to the sort of top 10. Right. And no, one of the things that I have is this kind of fantasy when it comes from platform from a platform perspective is that tourism will eventually get that richness that it deserves when we can link a lot of these platforms together. When I go places outside of my state or country, I just have this desire to have local food, local conversations with people who are off the beaten trail. You don't get that because so much of what is American has been transported abroad. I see the same McDonald's and Burger Kings that I see here in the States uh, in many of the tourist places where you where that, that you're kind of herded to go into. When you start to link platforms like what you find in China, Home Cook, where you can get a home cooked meal from people that posting it on the website for just about any type of dish you want. If those types of platforms were running in the deep south, people could taste all the different type of cuisine that was available to people in the 1800s, in the 1900s, that was preferred by people who were newly out of of slavery. Those types of dishes are still being prepared. They're just no longer restaurants that can compete with the the major chains to have a storefront to offer it. So that's my, my, my hope one day is that platforms like this can link up with platforms like Home Cook and give these rich, experiences that I, at least I yearn for when I travel. Totally. And not the uh, $60 coffees. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Not the $60 coffees. Absolutely. Well, speaking of coffee, yes. the last story takes us out to Seattle where Starbucks is uh, headquartered. We're not talking about Starbucks. We're talking about Instacart. And this article comes out of GeekWire. Uh, written by Monica Nickelberg um, in June 10th, 2020. And it's uh, obviously this this story is uh, one that concerns me because it looks at the fact that Instacart is threatening to pull out of Seattle because they don't want to pay hazard pay for the Instacart workers who are making home delivery of groceries. Uh, What's at issue here is that uh, Seattle has implemented legislation that requires companies operating in the gig space to pay hazard pay, $5 per delivery when they make a stop at your house above the standard fee. And that's to compensate them for the hazards that they're facing when making that delivery. And when the way they kind of define that is that Instacart and and the city of Seattle have required standards of these workers that are putting additional cost on each individual that operates. Cleaning, acquiring protective gear, and they have to do that between each trip. So if I do uh, 10 trips in a day, 
I go through 10 masks and 10 pairs of gloves. I clean the car each time, wipe down all the surfaces. And so that's one, limiting my delivery capacity. But two, I have to invest far much more time in order to provide this necessary service for people who are requesting home delivery of groceries in compliance with the stay-at-home order. Yeah, but $5 doesn't seem much to cover that because it sounds like, you know, that's quite a, a tough thing to do that many times a day. And would that money include the payment for the um, protective equipment or cleaning products or anything like that? Or do they want, are they looking for that as well? In digging in the story, the actual drivers are getting their own equipment and some of the relief funds that were provided by the state uh, and the uh, and the federal government were aimed at compensating these individual workers for making those investments. So some of the stimulus money is uh, what's at play here. And that's what Instacart uh, is arguing that if you put this money out there, the $5, it may make some of these gig workers ineligible for the stimulus money that's being offered up at the state and federal level. So that's one argument they're making against the $5. The other is obviously the increase in uh, transaction costs that they would incur if they uh, if they were to have to absorb the $5. Now, to me, if I am choosing to have my groceries delivered, I am choosing to pay for the premium service. And like you say, $5 is not uh, a lot to ask when you're facing a pandemic and you want to try to stay safe. So I'm wondering why the the, the pushback from Instacart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to, to recap on it, on Instacart, in the UK, it's usually the individual supermarkets that do the deliveries. So in the US, Instacart is a um, sort of aggregates the different stores and delivers for, for all of them. Is that right? That's right. So they've tried to become almost like a public utility, uh, like your gas company, your electric company, and they are providing a service to each of the chains that want uh, services brought to your front door. That can include your grocery store. That can include all of the restaurants that you typically would dine at, both fast and you know mid-market to high-end uh, restaurants. They can deliver all of that to your front door for a, a fee. And so they aggregate that demand instead of having each of those players uh, provide a delivery service to your home. It sounds to me like they are doing this because they can, um, and maybe they've got that sort of domination because presumably you know in, in the UK if it was just Asda or just Sainsbury's that would was saying that then you know <laughs> they wouldn't be you know they wouldn't be doing so well but presumably they, if they've got a bit of a stranglehold on all these supermarket deliveries and all these you know restaurant deliveries as well they're kind of putting their foot down in this region um, because they're in a position to but it doesn't sound very fair to me yeah I mean it, it, they've seen their their demand increase 300 percent year over year as a result of the pandemic. So they are in the sweet spot when you think about it, but that demand has also come with some other strains. Workers at Instacart have organized and uh, they actually went on strike in March demanding uh, personal protective equipment from the company as well as for them to comply with these 
hazard pay ordinances that are popping up around the uh, around the country. So it yeah, like I said, I it, it would seem that they would see the bigger picture and uh, view this as an opportunity to reset the market thinking on home delivery. Predecessors to this model were like Webvan that launched in the late 90s where they were delivering groceries from uh, their own distribution centers to uh, individual homes. That was pitched almost as a, almost like a free service as well if you bought a certain amount of groceries. In my interview with Devin Hughes, who is uh, running a similar service in Ireland by me, he, he pushes back against that model. He's like the grocery stores have done themselves a disservice by making this seem like a giveaway, a throwaway service when it's a completely different operating model and they should retrain the consumer to see the value of what this new way of doing business is going to be because he anticipates we're not going back to the way we were. Very few grocery stores will look the way they look now 10 years from now. Many of them will be dark. Many of them will be warehouses and spots for pickup for home delivery. And if that's the case, if Instacart wants to be around, they need to figure out a way to price this service appropriately so that the workers can actually feel like a valued member of, of the team. Mm-hmm. You do have a sense in the UK that somehow, it, you know, it's just a bit golden handcuffs with certain brands that you've tied in. You've got your favorites on the on the you know, on your online order, you deliver with them. Um, I probably know that I could get different and better things and cheaper things and better value by shopping on several. But you're tied into a delivery with that store. Um, and quite often you might have this thing called a delivery pass. So you purchase that so that you, you know, you can get repeated slots, you know, that type of thing. So you're really, um, you're really committed to that one brand, even if you know that it's not the most economical way. And the alternative is driving around, which you can't necessarily do during the pandemic. But to have multiple deliveries from multiple stores, it means, you know, it's, it's a complex thing. So um, I welcome a Devon, um, Devon's buy me model over here. So um, Devon, if you're listening, can't wait to <laughs> can't wait to welcome you <laughs> exactly because yeah that that sounds really complex if you're locked into an individual grocery chain you have very few degrees of freedom when you are mm-hmm. trying to get your groceries delivered you're you're you have to wait for slots that they make available which they can then turn into a bidding war of sorts for for that, or the, the slots get booked out so far in yep. advance that it's not even worth trying to get the delivery. It's a weekly challenge who can get, you know, between me and my husband, who can get the slot, who can get the, the delivery slot from um, our preferred supermarket. But I know that, you know, friends of mine have different preferred supermarkets. And, you know, again, we're all sort of locked into these, these brands because, you know, it's time constraints. I'm sure you, you could probably do it. Um, in a better way or an economical way, but it's just, it would probably be a, a full-time job. So no, there's definitely room for change in, in that space, especially in the UK. Has that changed the way you shop? So are you now booking slots like a week out to make sure you have a delivery set oh, yeah. even before you know what you're going to buy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's That's- crazy. Has there been some migration of, of shoppers to different 
uh, change just based yeah. on the ease and availability of, of getting yeah. those slots? Yes, and it, um, definitely because of the pandemic. Whereas I think we were always, everyone was quite brand loyal when it, we all have our sort of favorite um, stores. I mean, there's only sort of about, there's a sort of big four that people use really, I think um, Sainsbury's, Tesco, Asda, and then the sort of more high-end delivery would be Waitrose, Ocado, that um, is the, the sort of more expensive one. Um, and people have been migrating and choosing other alternative del- supermarket deliveries just because of slots availability. Um, so yeah, it's shaken everything up and it's going to be interesting to see what happens when that's emptied out and the dust settles a bit and we were all sort of, you know, we're all open to, to more and we've tried different things all because of this. Um, and we've realized the flaws in the things that we were, we were doing, um, without thinking about it. We were just doing things in a certain way, but we've been forced to, to look around us and for alternatives. And I think that that makes for interesting times. There are two things that I pondered about what this has done to our shopping habits because of those slots that you just talked about. When I uh, shopped on Webvan back in the uh, back in the nineties, I would book a slot to have them deliver when I wasn't even at home, and so this was kind of unheard of back in that time frame where you would have either a refrigerated box near your garage or they'd have access to your garage and would just leave the groceries right inside. They'd have the code to the, to the door and could, could, could you know, step in and, and put the groceries in. Are you, are, are you seeing that sort of shift there in your market where people are opening up to that sort of transaction uh, in order to get the service because of the demand increase? There was a flurry of interest in that, the, the idea of, of people sort of letting themselves in um, in the UK. And then there was, you know, the typical backlash, um, you know, in the media of, of things going wrong, etc. I think it was only Amazon that were doing that over here. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I think with the, the main supermarkets, you do have to be there and accept the order and it's taken right into your house, etc. So I don't think they have the capacity to do that, to leave it or have anything refrigerated or anything. But I, I think that Amazon was um, pushing a service of, of that description um, but there, there was there was some bad press around it. Um, so I, I'll, I'll have a look, and maybe we can we can uh, talk about that on another on another podcast. Yeah, I'd love to because I I just posted a, a blog post on uh, the App Jobs Institute blog page about this in the U.S. from the U.S. perspective, and this service has has stimulated what we call porch piracy. So people are dropping off these deliveries of groceries and other items. And before you can get to your door to pick them up, uh, people are running off with your, with your groceries or with your electronics. And in the blog post, I speculate at what this may require in, in the future for people who want this type of service. And it's looking like it's going to require biometrics. So I think that'll be a great topic for us to pick up in our next edition Great. Let's, the gigging news. Yes, let's look for some uh, news stories around that that we can discuss. Look forward to it. Well, guys, this has been another exciting edition of Gigging News, Everything and the Sharing Economy. We want to again thank our co-host, Eleanor Tucker, superstar obsessive over the peer-to-peer platform area for being on the podcast. And we can't wait to bring you another show in a couple of weeks. Till next time, guys, from Eleanor and I, We say peace.
I hope you enjoyed that episode of Gigging News. Eleanor and I are gearing up for the next episode, so make sure you hit that subscribe button. You really want to help us out? Make sure you share these episodes and leave us a comment. That helps us get around those pesky algorithms and pushes us up in the rankings. What's next for the podcast? Where we have a great interview coming up with the founders of Rideshare Mechanic. You don't want to miss that. If you like gigging, you might also like one of my other podcasts. If you're an entrepreneur, a maverick, you may like Gorillapreneur, The Art of Waging Small Business Warfare. If you're a corporate exec who's not ready to stick your toe into the entrepreneurial pond, then Career Coaching X's and O's might be the right podcast for you. It gives you the advice you need to get that corner off. In either case, you might want to also check out our Gorillapreneur merchandise. Gorillapreneur hats and t-shirts that say disrupt or die. You absolutely want to wear those on your next Zoom call to let folks know that you are the business maverick who's going to disrupt your market. Thanks for listening, guys. Remember, disrupt or die.